China has always been threatening Taiwan. Taiwan's top diplomat worries China may launch a war against Taiwan. But he adds that Beijing's threats to Taiwan are achieving the opposite effect. That's as the Chinese military extends drills encircling the island. A new lockdown mandate for China, this time in a tourist destination. Tens of thousands of travelers are stuck in one of the country's top vacation hubs. And at the same time, a new virus has emerged in China. Research shows it's transmitted from animals to humans. And experts believe it could be lethal, though no death reports have come up so far. And Washington has sold six million barrels of oil from its emergency stockpile. All of it going to a company tied to Beijing. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Taiwan's top diplomat says he worries that China may launch a war against Taiwan. That says the Chinese military announces new updates on its drill in the ocean around the island. Here's more. The Chinese military announced Monday it will extend drills around Taiwan. The drill started last week following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's landmark visit to the island. Ladies and gentlemen, the president and the speaker have arrived. Taiwan says it has detected 13 Chinese warships in waters off its coast. The island's foreign minister explains his concerns. I worry that China may really launch a war against Taiwan. But what it is doing right now is trying to scare us. And the best way to deal with it, to show to China that we are not scared. Beijing's drill covers multiple zones around Taiwan, effectively encircling the island. What's more, the Chinese military has crossed the median line during the drill. That's the unofficial divide between mainland China and Taiwan. Here's some background on China's relationship with Taiwan. Taiwan's current government used to rule mainland China, but fled to Taiwan during a civil war. Even so, Beijing still sees Taiwan as part of mainland Chinese territory. It has also threatened to take the island by force. That's despite Taiwan never having been ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. Back to the drill, some have raised concerns that Speaker Pelosi's visit triggered the strong reaction from Beijing. Here's Foreign Minister Joseph Wu's take. China has always been threatening Taiwan for years, and it's getting more serious in the last few years. And it's always been uh, that way. Uh, whether Speaker Pelosi visits Taiwan or not, the Chinese military threat against Taiwan has always been there. And that is the fact that we need to deal with. Asked if Taiwan's democratic system has ever been in more danger than it is today. I can tell you that uh, Taiwan is more resilient than before. Look at Taiwan these days. You know, China is trying to impose uh, trade sanctions against Taiwan, trying to attack Taiwan from military or non-military aspect. The life goes on here in Taiwan. And Taiwan shows its resilience. Wu previously rallied for international support. He said if Taiwan comes under a Chinese invasion, he hopes fellow democracies would rally around Taiwan and deter the Chinese regime. Some of that support for Taiwan may be coming from the Caribbean. President Tsai welcomed the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines to Taipei on Monday. 
His country is located in southern Caribbean and is one of 14 nations that maintains diplomatic relations with Taiwan. The prime minister says his six-day visit aims to express solidarity and strengthen bilateral relations. Likewise, he wants to pursue peace, security and prosperity. His arrival in Taiwan comes at a time of heightened tensions across the Taiwan Strait. China has been conducting large-scale military drills in the waters surrounding the island in recent days, in response to a visit by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Next, we head to the other side of the Taiwan Strait. It's peak tourism season in Senya, a city of southern China's Hainan Island. It's famous for resorts and beaches. But reports say it's not the best time to go. Over the weekend, some 80,000 tourists were stranded in Senya. That's after authorities reported a spike in COVID-19 cases and ordered lockdown measures. One tourist from Shanghai said the mandate triggered a sense of deja vu after his home city's three-month lockdown earlier this year. We were all aware of like the risk, but I mean, like if you're traveling in general in China, like you should kind of be aware of uh, what could happen. Um, and if you don't consider that, then you should probably just not go in the first place. Railway authorities banned all ticket sales in Senya, while all flights were also canceled. Tourists wanting to depart Sanya must first test negative for COVID-19 on five PCR tests over seven days. China has stuck to a zero COVID-19 policy, despite the economic and social costs. While the Chinese Communist Party virus, which causes COVID-19, is still putting some Chinese cities under lockdown, a new virus has been detected in the country. Chinese media reports say at least 35 people in two provinces in northern China have been infected. The new virus is called the Langya Henipa virus. Patients sickened with it often come down with flu-like symptoms, including cough, fever and weakness. A report on the infection cited both Chinese and Singaporean scientists. Their research on the outbreak was printed by the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the most renowned medical publications. It's been discovered that the virus can be transmitted from animals to humans, though no human-to-human transmission has been found so far. What's more, experts believe the infection is lethal, but no deaths have been reported. The fatality rate remains unknown. It's reportedly similar to the Nipah virus, which comes with a fatality rate as high as 40 percent. Shrews have been named the infection's most likely carriers, with dogs and goats following behind. Six million barrels of oil sold from America's emergency energy stockpile to a company that answers to the Chinese Communist Party. That's as gas prices hover around $4 nationwide. Here's how it happened. Records show the Biden administration has sold nearly 6 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Reserve to an entity with ties to the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. From September 2021 to July 2022, the Department of Energy, or DOE, has awarded three crude oil contracts worth over $460 million to Unipec America. Why is the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve important? This crude oil supply is America's emergency energy backup. It was set up to ensure the U.S. won't face oil shortages in case of supply disruptions. These oil stocks are saved in underground caverns along the Gulf of Mexico. The amount of oil they hold is enough to fill over a billion large sedans. But that oil stockpile is depleting fast, and now the reserve has hit a 37-year low. President Biden has been releasing oil from the reserve to bring down gas prices. 
specifically 1 million barrels a day over six months. The White House also authorized the reserve to sell millions of barrels of oil to Europe and countries in Asia, including China. And those oil sales have come under controversy. Last week, over 200 House Republicans voted in support of legislation aimed at preventing oil sales to entities with ties to the CCP. Supporting this language is common sense, especially since uh, we need to focus, our increase, focus on increasing energy production and not supporting from our adversaries while Americans are still suffering from outrageously high fuel prices here at home. These reserves are meant to be used for emergencies only. The legislation failed after Democrats unanimously opposed it. Last week, a special assistant to President Biden addressed criticism about selling oil to China, saying the DOE is required by law to sell it in a competitive auction to the highest bidder, regardless of whether that bidder is a foreign company. But the April and July purchases cost Unipec around $103 and $119 per barrel, respectively. The highest prices offered by comparison were roughly $111 and $125. That's according to a review of DOE contracts by the Epic Times. In May, the Department of Energy announced an oil buyback plan. The idea is to buy the oil back at a cheaper price than it was sold, likely after fiscal year 2023, when oil prices are expected to lower again. Washington is slapping new sanctions on Iran, hoping to curb its ability to sell oil to East Asia, this time by targeting Chinese and United Arab Emirates firms. Here's more. Washington just imposed sanctions on Chinese oil firms. That's over helping an Iranian company sell oil and petrochemical products to East Asia. The value of these bills runs into tens of millions of U.S. dollars. The U.S. said the curbs are designed to stamp down on Iran's nuclear program. Six companies are listed for sanctions, four in Hong Kong and one in the United Arab Emirates. The U.S. Treasury accused one of Iran's largest petrochemical brokers of being behind those six companies and of taking advantage by continuing its business in East Asia. That's despite getting sanctioned by the U.S. in 2019. The four Hong Kong-based firms have not only provided a convenient path for sales, but also transportation. Bank accounts controlled by the companies showed that millions of dollars in profits were collected through the dealings. This marks the third group of Chinese companies in two months that are facing sanctions from Washington due to cooperation with Iran. Commenting on the situation, Brian Nelson, Treasury Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, stated that until such time as Iran is ready to return to full implementation of its commitments, we will continue to enforce sanctions on the illicit sale of Iranian petroleum and petrochemicals. A cyber defense company is calling out Beijing. It says China is using fake news websites to spread propaganda and disinformation. The details come from a Mandiant report released on Thursday. Mandiant is a public U.S.-based cybersecurity firm. Its report alleges that Beijing has used at least over 70 fraudulent news sites and social media platforms to spread pro-communist party propaganda. The sites label themselves as independent news outlets. They span across the globe and publish in 11 languages. The report says these sites criticize the U.S. and its allies and use fabricated content to defame critics of the Chinese regime. In one case, a Twitter account with the name Jonas Drosten posted three forged letters claiming to be from U.S. Senator Marco Rubio. They said German scholar Adrian Zenz got funding from both Rubio and former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. Adrian Zenz is an anthropologist who exposed detention camps and forced labor issues in the Xinjiang region. 
The account is now suspended. But before it was taken down, the Chinese Communist Party's official newspaper, China Daily, quoted the posts, using it as so-called proof that Zenz was paid to make fake Xinjiang accusations. Based on the report, experts believe the websites are linked to a public relations company in Shanghai. Coming up, another warning about TikTok and Beijing-backed data theft. This time, the message comes from influencer Joe Rogan. And the standoff in the Middle East, plus China's infiltration in Israel. We sat down with Arya Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, for details on America's role in the region. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In a recent episode of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, popular online influencer Joe Rogan warned about the dangers of using TikTok. He says user data could end up in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. And it is Philzo reports. On the popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, which has over 2 billion views and around 13 million subscribers on YouTube alone, Rogan himself was warning about the dangers of using the app TikTok. God, I read TikTok's terms of service. Uh, I went down a TikTok rabbit hole yesterday. Yeah. He discovered how the app TikTok steals our data for the Chinese government. Stealing intellectual property, stealing all your data, stealing credit card numbers, stealing where you're going, tracking you, if you're uh, criticizing the Chinese government. TikTok is owned by Chinese company ByteDance. And in China, there aren't any real private companies. If the Chinese regime wants any data or information, so-called private companies are forced to turn it over. This isn't a boy crying wolf. This isn't a theoretical problem. This isn't uh, people overreacting. There's a real issue. Joseph Steinberg is a top cybersecurity expert. He wrote the book Cybersecurity for Dummies, first and second editions. He's been in the field for 25 years. This is a a real issue of Chinese apps that may have Chinese government influence ending up on Americans' devices where all sorts of sensitive data resides and sensitive communications occur. In 2020, former President Donald Trump tried to ban TikTok in the U.S. for the exact same reason. Because you don't know what a foreign power may be thinking and how they may be planning to use it. So there is an issue of sharing data. And it's not just TikTok. It's any entity that's sitting in China that you're giving access to your data. Not too long ago, data collection became more valuable than oil. Scott Swanson is a Silicon Valley veteran with nearly 20 years of experience in tech. He's also the founder of the app Bonder, which prioritizes privacy, trying to bring back the human connection with local meetups and events. When is enough enough? How much information do you want to share? Who's watching? Who's listening? And what are they doing with it? Is it just for advertising? Swanson says TikTok is more of a data collection agency than a social media app. How free are we on these platforms to say what we want to say and do what we want to do without somebody watching and regulating it? I call it intrusive data collection. NTD News reached out to TikTok for comment, but we didn't get a response by airtime. Phil Zoe, NTD News. How should the U.S. approach Israel's business relationship with China? And what will Israel gain if it severs ties with the Chinese regime? We hear from REA Lightstone, 
former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, for answers. He's also the author of Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. Let's dive in. Arie, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So in your book, you also mentioned how in the past, maybe Israel and China, for instance, had a lot of business deals. There's a lot of business interests there. But because Israel is a big U.S. ally, that kind of had to change. So can you kind of explain how that balance worked out? Sure. Uh, look, for Israel, just to understand where they're sitting, they have felt and continue up until the Abraham Accords to feel isolated in their own neighborhood. So when you feel isolated in your own neighborhood, you look for friends wherever it is that you can find them. They've always been great friends with us as the United States. But when the Chinese discovered that Israel is a source of enormous technological prowess and innovation, the Chinese came in with one of their charm offenses. And as opposed to what the Chinese do in Africa, which is essentially try to pay for everything and ultimately own it later, the Chinese felt that by coming into Israel, early investors, overinflated valuations, access to their market, which as we all know, the Chinese market is extremely large, it became a very attractive uh, partnership for Israel, especially Israel only had one major superpower that it was friendly with, which was us. Now, when the Trump administration came along, we stood with Israel like no previous U.S. administration had ever stood with Israel, starting with President Trump, Jared Kushner, David Friedman, the list goes on and on. But with that comes responsibility. Prime Minister of Israel, during the course of the Trump administration, used to always say that Israel has no greater friend than the United States, but the United States has no greater friend than Israel. Now, if that's the case, Israel needs to stand with the United States vis-a-vis our race for technological superiority versus China. And that meant that Israel needed to have something that looks like CFIUS that we have in our country, which goes ahead and informs investors and infrastructure and all sorts of issues that come up with nefarious Chinese investments. And we began on the first week of educating the Israelis, and at the very end of the four years, actually working with them to enforce what some of those rules and regulations and laws ultimately would become. And given that kind of switch, maybe, right, so what is Israel then gaining if we're cutting off the Chinese regime from them? Yeah, so what Israel gains is an even closer relationship with us. At the end of the day, when the United States acts clearly and says, look, China is a threat for the following reasons, you're a sovereign country. Decide whether or not you're afraid of those reasons. You might be or you might not be. But understand, if you ignore those reasons, that's going to challenge your relationship with us, the United States. And because Israel and the United States are lockstep intelligence, defense, economically, Israel just had to make a cost-benefit analysis. The closer they got to China, the further they would have to distance themselves from the United States of America, and any sane leader of the state of Israel would understand that there is one superpower that Israel wants to be affiliated and associated with, and that's the United States. Once explained pretty clearly, they were able to make that decision with tremendous confidence. And given that, I think you mentioned in your book, too, were the friend and the foes, right? And it has to be made clear what they benefit from and what the consequences are. So do you see that playing out more with, say, other countries in the area? Yeah, part of that has to do with our ability to be clear. And one of the results of that clarity was the Abraham Accord. When I discuss and let my people know, it's very clear the United States made a lot of decisions during President Trump's four years. Some of them were popular. Some of them were impopular. 
or unpopular. But each country knew why the United States made which decision that we made and when we made it. And after they understood what decision we made, they were then able to decide what was in the best interest of their country. And basically what that means, just on a very simple basis, is that when the United States of America recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, we moved our embassy to Jerusalem. Did they love that decision in the United Arab Emirates? Probably not. But they understood the decision. And they calculated with that data point that, okay, the United States is going to stand closer to Israel. And if we want to stand closer to the United States, maybe we should stand closer to Israel as well. And that was part of the origination of the Abraham Accords. The same piece needs to be emphasized and then reemphasized regarding China. You can't sit on both sides of the fence. You can't have a pro-U.S. foreign policy and a backdoor entry for the Chinese. You just can't do that. It, the, the, the rubber will hit the road, and that will hurt our relationship with that country. Just one place where that became extremely clear is Iran, which is the number one uh, problem causer in the entire Middle East, was propped up based upon their economic dealings with China. If you look at it today, the Iran-China-Russia triangle is a source of enormous evil throughout the world. And we have to let our allies in the region, the Middle East specifically here, know that they can pick one or they can pick the other, but they can't have both. And expanding on that, it seems right now, I mean, you mentioned Iran, right, and how that's kind of destabilizing the whole area. And so it seems, especially right now, a big issue has been gas, <laughs> even here in the United States. And there are reports that Saudi Arabia was considering doing transactions with China in the Chinese yuan. So how would you see that affecting the area? I would see that as a demonstration of tremendous weakness by the United States. When, when our president travels to Saudi and asks them to pump more oil, to produce more energy, they have to be looking at us as though we've got two heads. They know that we can be energy independent at home. And so therefore, when we show up there, to the best of my knowledge, it's not called regional warming, it's called global warming. So therefore, if there's an energy climate issue, then it should affect the United States just as much if it's pumped in Saudi, Iran, Venezuela, other places that we've gone to ask them to produce more energy, as well as it does when it's produced in Texas or in the Dakotas. So when we turn and look at them and say, we need you to produce more energy, they look at us and say, why aren't you producing your own energy? It doesn't make any sense. And what can the, say, average American do then? Maybe some of them are like, we just had the whole Afghanistan thing. They don't want to think about the Middle East. What would you say to them? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody wants to see any troops in the Middle East. We don't want to see American young men and young women uh, over there. But we do want to see American young men and young women at the universities there. We want to see them in the research labs. We want to see them being part of startups over there. And we want to see them bring those startups back to America. We want to see the Middle East as a pace of place of peace and prosperity. The only way to do that is to double down on when peace is happening. There's a momentum. There were five peace treaties signed in 123 days. There are more waiting in the wings, but we have to be invested in them. If I'm an average American, I'm curious if my governor is going to travel to the Abraham Accord countries to think about how we can give preferential deal treatment to those countries versus China. I'm curious whether my mayor is going to go ahead and make a trip to the region and see how we can create programs that help a diverse community in all of our cities succeed the same way they're creating diverse communities in their cities to be able to succeed. And mostly I'm curious if my members of Congress and members of the Senate are willing to go ahead and invest in the future success of the Abraham Accords. Because if they don't, and if we do not, 
I'm not positive when the next time will roll around for our generation or the next for true Middle East peace to happen. And what winds up happening when there is not Middle East stability, we wind up getting involved. So it's the exact opposite. We don't want to get involved. So make sure that we invest in peace. If we ignore it, China, Russia, Iran show up, and we're going to wind up showing up because that's where our energy comes from. That's where our allies are. Let's support the peace, and therefore we don't need to deal with it when it comes time to chaos and war. Arie, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live online worldwide. Registration hotline 188-477-9228. For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com.